Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness, Lord, toward us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit today. We pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth, that you would unite us in the faith, encourage our hearts, Lord, lift us up to you. May we set our minds on things above and not on things of this world today, Lord. Help us to gaze upon your beauty, Lord, to look to you as treasure. Lord, uh, we pray right now that our country would turn to you, that this world, Lord, the darkness all around this world, that it would, that your light would just permeate, Lord, dark hearts, that there would be a revival, not only in the city, in the state, this country, in the world, Lord, that people would recognize that the time is short and that you are coming back soon. So, Lord, use us for your glory. Use this message to bless our hearts, to encourage us, and to be used by you in this dark world. So please bless it, Lord, and open up our hearts to receive it right now. In Jesus' name, amen. title of today's message is The Preeminent Christ. The Preeminent Christ. The word preeminent can be defined as surpassing all others, having a paramount rank, dignity, or importance. The, the Collins Dictionary defines it this way. Uh, when referring to a person, preeminence means someone who is important, someone who is more powerful or more capable than others. Synonyms for preeminent include greatest, foremost, best, finest, chief, prominent, towering, supreme, superior, unequaled, incomparable, unmatched, exceptional, illustrious, famous, renowned, the list goes on and on. I love looking at thesauruses, and I mentioned and referenced Colossians 2, verse 3, last week, where it says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we talked about that word treasures. It means thesaurus, actually. It's where we get the English word thesaurus, a storehouse of precious things, a storehouse of treasure and treasures of synonyms in Christ has filled all wisdom all knowledge the human language is incapable of explaining who Christ is his beauty and his glory and his power and his wisdom and his knowledge we grasp at words to try to explain who Jesus is Jesus is called the almighty in revelation 1:8 he's called the alpha and the omega in revelation 22 12 and 13 he's called the amen in Revelation 3.14. He's the author of life in Acts 3.15. He's the bread from heaven. John 6.32. He's the bread of life. John 6.35. He's the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5.4. He's the consolation of Israel. Luke 2.25. He's the deliverer. Romans 11.26. He's Emmanuel. Matthew 1.23. He's faithful, the faithful and true witness. Revelation 3.14. He's the gate, John 10, 7 through 9. He's the heir of all things, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And if I didn't run out of room taking notes on my page, I could go on and on. I read an article this week, a couple days ago. Talked about a millionaire in 2010. His name was Forrest Fenn. Forrest Fenn hit a treasure chest worth $1 million in the Rocky Mountains. 
Perhaps you've heard the story. I never did until a couple days ago. This treasure chest had 265 gold coins, hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets valuing over a million dollars, and he wrote a 24-line poem, and he, in and he included it in his book, The Thrill of the Chase, as an incentive to get people to visit the outdoors, to be adventurous, to go and search for this buried treasure. Well, over the next 10 years, people did. People came out in the droves, people from all over the world. Yet five people died searching for this treasure. Hypothermia, drownings, one man fell off a cliff looking at this poem and trying to find the treasure. Kate Luce sold everything she owned and moved to the search area. She says she gave up about $75,000 over a seven-year period to find this treasure. Sasha Dent estimates she spent 10,000 hours researching to find this treasure. 300 trips later, she still didn't find it. However, on June 6, 2020, it was announced that the treasure was found. Someone actually found the treasure and that put an end to this treasure hunt that claimed five lives. And then uh, this man, Forrest Fenn, died shortly thereafter. Some people think that he might have tipped off where the treasure was to someone just to put an end to all the deaths and all the depression and all that people were going through to find this treasure. Matthew 13:44 states this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. If you remember what Peter said to Jesus, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Matthew 19, 27. It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives that what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I think of Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Give your life to Jesus. Give everything for him. He's our treasure. He's our joy. He's our peace. He's our everything. We're looking at Colossians 1, verse 13 through 18. And actually, we're only going to look at verse 13 through 15 today. If you want to turn there with me, let's talk about Jesus and how he is the preeminent one. He is our treasure. Now, I intended to go to verse 23, and then I said, no, there's just too much there. I'm going to go to verse 18, 13 to 18. And then I said, no, 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 there's too much there. And then we're going to look at 13 to 15, but there's even too much there. I'm just scratching the surface. Whenever we talk about who Jesus is, the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, man, it just takes so much time. The depths, Paul says, the wisdom and the depths and to look into who God is, who it's unsearchable. Who can fully understand it? But we get a glimpse in this text today. Colossians 1, 13 through 18. And it's a continuation of Paul's prayer that we talked about last week, which I've been trying to actually pray this week. 
And I said it wasn't something that I usually pray that we'd be filled with the knowledge of him. Do we pray that prayer? I pray that I'd be filled or that you would be filled with the knowledge of him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to please him in all respects and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that's a great prayer that we have. And even one scholar that I was looking at, he's like, I don't know where this prayer starts or where this prayer ends. Does it end at verse 12, 13? It just continues on almost. But Paul transitions from, I believe, this prayer more into a precise understanding of who Jesus Christ is, who he is, what he's done for us, who we are in him. And that starts at verse 13. And just one more comment before I read this. How do you, what would you do to refute cults and false religions and philosophical speculations and traditions of men and deceptions and Gnosticism? What would you do to refute these things? And the answer is you write the book of Colossians, right? You write Colossians 1, 13 through 18. That's what you do. That's how you refute all these things. And that's what Paul has done here. Let's go ahead and read the text. It says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he, might, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything it's all about jesus it's all about the supremacy of christ the saving grace of christ the deity of christ the eternality of christ the power of christ it's all found here and even throughout the book of colossians and for that matter throughout the scriptures so as we look at verses 13 through 15 today and bring in verses 16 through 18 a little bit as well I counted 10 ways that the Apostle Paul in verses 13 through 18, 10 ways that he shows that Paul is the preeminent one, that Paul shows that Jesus is the preeminent one. I only want to work my way through four points today. Four points. Here's the first one. Christ the Son is the beloved King, and this is verse 13. Christ the Son is the beloved King. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And today I'm going to interact a little bit with um, Mormonism and Islam, just a little bit because it's tied into this text. This text has been under attack, or let's just say the false religions, cults, whatever you'd like to call them. They want to attack the deity of Christ the eternality of Christ, the kingship of Christ. And that's what we see here in verse 13. It's Christ's kingdom. He's the king. He's the beloved son. Do you remember what Jesus told Pilate, John 18, 36? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting. He, he would have said, Peter, keep fighting. Get the other sword, disciples. Where is it? Let's go. We need to take them out. We need to set up my kingdom here. It's time to overtake the Romans. It's time to show the Jews who's boss. Let's set up this kingdom now. 
And he says, now my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. They're not. Jesus is willingly giving himself over. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was a symbol of peace. Kings rode in on a white horse when it was time for battle. That's Revelation 19. That's later. That's when he comes back. But right here he says, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18, 36. But in verse 37, Pilate then responds, oh, so you are a king? Jesus answers him back, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you are a Christian, you are of the truth. This verse says you've been taken out of the domain of darkness and you've been transferred to the kingdom of, of God's beloved son. You have heard the truth. You've repented of your sins. The truth has changed you. It's convicted you. It's caused you to turn from your old way of life, your life of sin and enslavement to the devil and to darkness and to turn to Christ, the light that has shined and illuminated your hearts to believe in him. And now you're in his kingdom under his rule and under his reign. Isaiah 9-7, Daniel 7-14, and Luke 1-33 state that Christ's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Revelation 1-5 states that Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of this earth. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But he's not only king, according to this text, he's a beloved son. If you remember when Jesus was getting baptized and as he was coming out of the water, the Father said this, Matthew 3, 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John three thirty five says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Islam teaches that the Father has no Son. Islam teaches Jesus is not King. Islam teaches that Jesus is not from everlasting to everlasting. Yet Jesus himself calls, Jesus calls himself the Son of God 60, over 60 times in Scripture. He is the Son. He is King. He's the one the Father loves and glorifies. Listen to Surah 17, from the Quran. It says, quote, All praise be to Allah, who has neither taken to himself a son, nor has he any partner in his kingdom. No, only the father is king. He has no son. A religion comes 600 years after the New Testament, after the time of Christ, and wants to rewrite everything. Paul said in Galatians 1, if we are an angel, preach to you a different gospel than that which we preached, let him be accursed, anathema. And then he says it again. I'll say it again. If we or an angel, if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. So what have we seen down through church history? We see Arianism, who comes, Arian, who comes hundreds of years after Christ, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, and says he's not an eternal, he's not the eternal God. He isn't from everlasting to everlasting. And so then you have Islam and then you have Mormonism and you have Jehovah's Witnesses and you have all these false religions that teach different things about Christ. If we stay close to the scriptures, we won't veer off into false teaching. Revelation 19, 16 says, and on his robe, that's Jesus's robe, and on his thigh is, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of 
of lords. Revelation 17, 14 says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings, and those who are with Him are called the chosen. They're the called, the chosen, and the faithful. I love that. So he is the beloved king. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the Lord of lords. He's coming back again. Read Revelation 19. It should cause you to be humble, to fear him in a, in a biblical way, to have reverence before him, eyes like a flame of fire, sword coming out of his mouth. On his head is this crown of this diadems, and he's coming back to wage war, and the kings of the earth will be left to nothing. It's going to be a glorious day for us, a sad day for those who don't know him. So we need to get the word out. Turn to him before it's too late. So we know how the story ends. We win. We'll rule and reign with Christ. This is something we're to be encouraged about. And that's what we see in the verse prior to verse 13. Verse 12, give thanks, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have a lot that we're going to inherit in Christ through the Father and his love for us. So it should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to be encouraged. It should cause us to give thanks. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2, 12 says, If we endure with him, if we endure, we will reign with him. We're one day going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Wow. Second point, Christ is the Redeemer. Christ is the Redeemer. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I grew up singing a song in church called, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed. Anyone know that one? By the blood of the Lamb. It's a great great song. Someone added some words. I've tried to find these words online and I couldn't find them. It goes like this. Some people say evolution's a fact. Some people say evolution's a fact. Some people say evolution's a fact. I'll go ape when the Lord comes back. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. I don't know if you have ever sung that before. I found the original song online. It didn't include those words. So someone must have added that at one point or another in Blessed Hope. If you know, come up to me later. I was asking Leah, do you remember these lyrics? But I love that song because we've been redeemed. Scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When you truly understand redemption, that you've been redeemed, that you've been washed clean, that your sins are forgiven, you want to sing about it. And when the enemy comes and he wants to cast guilt in your life and condemnation and you throw these verses right at him, I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. I'm forgiven of my sins. The Greek word here is apolutrosis, verse 14, for redemption. Apolutrosis, it speaks of being rescued from enslavement, being purchased from a debt of sin. Speaks of buying back from, repurchasing, winning back what was previously forfeited or lost. The purchase price for us because of our sin was too high. It was, we were unredeemable. 
Humanity was doomed. We were without hope. Scripture teaches the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody could pay the ransom. When you read the Old Testament, you can't help but go in a few pages without seeing a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or some other animal. They were constantly sacrificing animals day after day after day. They wanted to be cleansed of their sin. It was a temporary cleansing over and over and over again. It was a picture, a foreshadowing of the only one who could forgive us and redeem us from our sin, and that's Jesus Christ. But listen to Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. It says, No one can by any means redeem another or give God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is priceless. Some translations say costly. And he should cease imagining forever. We can't redeem each other. We're sinners. It's impossible. The debt is too high. Yet you read in Revelation 5, here's this lamb standing as one slain. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And they're singing a song in Revelation 5.9. And this is what they sing. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Only Jesus could redeem us by his blood. I looked up what was the highest bail amount ever recorded. Three billion dollars. Three billion with a B. That was the highest bail amount ever recorded. Put down for this, or whatever you call it, posted bail of three billion for a convicted murderer, Robert Durst, or Robert Dust, son of Seymour Dust, a real estate tycoon. Con he was convicted of murder. He got out, I think, first time. It was a $1 million bail. He paid that, and they said, that's it, $3 billion. Our bail amount was much higher. A debt that could not be paid. Yet 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. When you understand how much was paid, for your freedom in Christ, for your forgiveness of sins, it causes you to want to glorify God in your body. The greatest price was paid by the greatest person who deserves our greatest praise. One commentator puts it this way, quote, there was no price which the sinner could pay, no atonement which he could make, and consequently, if Christ had not died, the sinner would have been the slave of sin and the servant of the devil forever. And like I said, Psalm 107.2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. In Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So Jesus is the son, the beloved king. He's the redeemer. Paul now transitions to verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Have you ever been told you look just like someone? You look just like your dad. You look just like your mom. You look like your sister or your, your brother. I've been wearing hats recently and 
My son Leland, he loves to wear hats every day. He'll wear a hat all around the house. He'll wear a hat to bed. I wore a hat for 20 years playing baseball and I kind of got tired of it. So for years I stopped wearing hats. And then most recently I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of doing my hair and I'm tired of the sun shining on my face all the time. And so I started wearing hats and I wore a hat the other day and people thought I was my brother, Tommy. You look just like your brother, Tommy. They already say that, but especially when you wear hats, you look just like him. So I'm not going to anymore. No, <laughs> I'm going to still wear the hats. But I even had a person a couple years ago at church come up to me. Hey, Tommy, how are you? And I was like, thank you. I guess that's a compliment. He's six years younger than me. So, um, or 12 years younger. Looking at my wife, she's like, no, 12 years younger. And st they still get us mixed up. So there you go. But anyhow, how does that correlate to verse 15? He's the image of the invisible God. He's not just l merely like the Father. He's not just similar. He's not merely a resemblance. He's the image. The Greek word is icon. Richard Trent states of icon, it, it assumes a prototype of which it not merely resembles, but from which it is drawn. F.F. F. Bruce states icon is more than a shadow. It's a replication I love Hebrews 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory, of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He's the exact representation, not a similar representation, not just a comparable or a like representation. He's an exact representation. It, it was that word there in Hebrews 1, 3 was used as a stamp in the first century. That Greek word talked about a stamp with exact expression of any person or thing. And the church fathers used that word to defend that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, his radiance. They honed in on that phrase in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews, that he showed forth the radiance and the glory of God in an exact expression. I love in John 14, 8, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. He looks at Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responds in verse 9 of John 14, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father's love. You've seen his glory. You've seen his goodness and his kindness and his peace and his holiness and his, all his attributes, wisdom and righteousness and patience. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or there's John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him for us. He's made him known. So Jesus didn't just re resemble the Father or merely look like the Father or merely relate us to the Father, but as Ellicott's commentary states, he's the real and essential embodiment of the Father. So a question that we can ask of verse 15 is, is Jesus the image of the physical God? Is he the embodiment of a God who has flesh and bones? You say, why would you ask that question? Is Jesus the embodiment of a God who has flesh and bones? Who, who would teach such a thing? It says that he's the image of the invisible God. 
Well, believe it or not, just as Paul was refuting heresy in his day, there's many, many heresies in our day. We love our Latter-day Saint friends, but listen to what Joseph Smith taught. Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 130, verse 22. He says, quote, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. I compiled some quotes from an article titled The Doctrine of the Firstborn and Only Begotten by Rodney Turner. This is found on the byu.edu website. It states, God the Father took life unto himself precisely as Jesus did. The Father was once as we are now. That God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth and worked out his kingdom with fear and trembling and then laid down his life and took it up again as a resurrected being. This was compiled from the scriptural teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, pages 181, 345-47. So God is as we are now, right? At one point, God was a human with flesh and bones, and he had to be a savior of some kingdom or some earth, and then he worked out his kingdom with fear and trembling, and he was exalted, and then now Jesus is following in his footsteps, and Jesus uh, took on flesh and bones as the Father did, and then he died on the cross and rose, and so now he gets exalted to godhood. And now, if you and I follow in the same footsteps, and this is where in the article he goes, but I don't think we're to die on a cross or we're to be saviors. So he goes, this breaks down somewhere, but nevertheless, we're now to follow in the footsteps to be gods. And it's called the eternal progression of godhood within Mormonism, that we can all become gods and then we just procreate and then they can become gods and it it goes eternally far back and eternally forward. So... Like I said, we love our Latter-day Saint friends, but we have to call out false teaching. We have to refute things, as Paul did in his day. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is not the image of a God who lived on an earth, a God with flesh and bones. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God said in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. He didn't have to earn Godhood or progress towards Godhood. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the great I am. He is God, the Spirit, the invisible one. We can't see him with our eye, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament. Many of the church fathers, though, believe that Christ came, we call them Christophanes in the Old Testament, when we see God seem to take on human form, even in Isaiah chapter 6 when he, sees, when he says, I see the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe and fills the temple. And then it says in the book of God, the Gospel of John, that Isaiah saw his glory. And it seems to be speaking of Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory the human form that he would later take on was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We call him Christophanes. So Christ is the beloved king. He is the redeemer. He is the image of the invisible God. And fourthly, 
He's the firstborn son, or the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. I can't believe I'm on my last point. I was kind of stumbling, like, wait, am I already there? Sometimes when you teach, it's like you lose track of where you're at. You're like, has this been an hour and a half or has this been five minutes? It's like you just get overwhelmed with the beauty of the text, the beauty of Christ. So we see this in verse 15, the short little phrase at the end of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? The firstborn born of all creation. I like how the NIV puts it. It puts it the firstborn over all creation. What does this phrase mean? Was, is this teaching that Jesus was spiritually born to the, to the Father before the world existed? Is that what this is teaching? Is it teaching that Jesus was a created being? Is it teaching that God created the Son before the rest of creation? Was Jesus born of a spirit mother um, as a spirit child before creation? Is that what Paul is teaching here? If you want to believe in Mormonism or you want to believe in um, be a Jehovah's Witness or some of these other false religions, they force that into this text. And on a cursory reading on the surface level, I must say, you, you read this and you go, what is this talking about? firstborn of all creation. We're going to just dig into this for a couple minutes, but I want to give you a couple quotes from some Latter-day Saints. And I want to give two quotes that kind of preface where they're coming from. That same article that I referenced earlier states, Mormonism is simultaneously monotheistic, tritheistic, and polytheistic. Somehow you can simultaneously be monotheistic, believe in one God and believe in many gods at the same time is what they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? We, we want to be Christian, but we believe in a plurality of gods and that we're all gods. And God is God the Father is one God and Jesus is one God and the Holy Spirit's one God. Different beings of God. Christians throughout church history have believed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, one being, three persons. We want to allow all the scripture to speak. And the scripture teaches that God, the Father, he's, he's God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit's God. But they are one God. Now what Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses and others have to do to force on this text, they have to say that Jesus is a different being of God, therefore he was created by God. And they put that here, the first born or first created of all creation. Joseph Smith stated, quote, we must learn how to be God ourselves or learn how to be God yourselves, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another. TPJS 346 and 347. It's the teachings of Joseph Smith. Where does the Bible teach that you and I need to learn how to become gods? It doesn't, right? And so we have to stay in the scripture. So when it comes to this verse, what do they say about firstborn? This is in Tur Turner's article. He says, quote, it indicates this term firstborn that the resurrected Jesus was bearing witness of his own progression from spirit birth to ultimate exaltation. 
The first to be born into the father's spirit family had become the first to be born in the father's fullness, the fullness of priesthood, exaltation, and godhood, doctrine and covenants, chapter 93, verses 4 and 12 through 14. So when you're starting from a polytheistic premise uh, where one must learn to be a god, well, you need, a, you need to twist the scripture to get there. And if you isolate a verse outside of its context within a book of the Bible and without outside of its context in the entire Bible, then you're left with false teaching. You see this word firstborn also in verse 18. It says, he is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So it's saying he's the first spiritual offspring from the dead, the first created one from the dead. We see within the context here itself that the term firstborn takes on different meanings. If you look throughout all of the scripture, even the Old Testament, in Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And he tells Moses, you are to tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to wipe out your firstborn son. The word firstborn can be figurative. Israel is not a literal offspring, spiritually born before the foundation of the earth. Jeremiah 31.9, God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Joseph had two sons. Which son was born first, Manasseh or Ephraim? Manasseh was born first. Yet God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. He took on the mantle of preeminence, of supremacy. Sometimes in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Ephraim is interchangeable with Israel because it was so prominent and had so many people. God says, that's my firstborn. My blessing is upon Ephraim, not Manasseh. My blessing is upon Israel over all the nations of the earth. They are the preeminent ones. And then you have Psalm 89, 27. God refers to David as his firstborn. When was David born? Was he the oldest in his family? Remember the story? He's out tending the flock and Samuel's coming in to anoint the king of Israel and Samuel and Jesse actually sets up all his sons in front of Samuel and you know the story, right? Where's David? He's my, I've got one other son, Jesse says. Samuel's like, none of these are to be anointed king. He's the runt of the litter, the young one. God says he will be my firstborn. He will be the king who is exalted over all the kings of the earth. He is the preeminent one. And Christ is the greater David. He's the greater Israel. He is preeminent. He is supreme. So when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it's saying he is the preeminent one over all creation. He is the supreme one over all creation. He's the chief and that's what the context tells us or else verse 16 and verse 17 don't make sense. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's before everything. He created everything. He's over everything so that he might have first place, verse 18, in everything. 
That's Paul's whole point about this text, that Jesus is exalted. He's preeminent. He's superior. Not that Jesus was a spiritual offspring of God the Father in some primordial, whatever you want to call it, existence before the kingdom. You ha- that's not exegesis. That's eisegesis. That's reading that into a text and putting a theology into the, into the Bible that's not there. Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am. Associating himself with Exodus 3.14 where God says, Moses, I am that I am. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. I just am. That's who I am. I always have been. And so Jesus is eternal. He was not created. Context is king. Can't just rip a verse out of context. When I looked at jw.org, they had some things to say about this text as well, and they commented on verse 15, and they, they add the word other to verses 15 and 16 and 17, where they, or verse 16 they say, for by him all other things were created. And in verse 17, he is before all other things, and they say in their commentary, the word other doesn't appear in the Greek manuscripts. It's not in the original, but we put it there because we don't want to imply that Jesus is the creator of all things. So we put the word other there to show. You see, you have to rewrite the Bible to fit these false theologies. And people in these faiths or whatever you want to call them, we want to be generous. Some people call them cults, right? False doctrines, false teachings, false religions that will lead people to hell. That's why we want to defend the truth. That's why we want to know the truth. That's why if you're talking to a Latter-day Saint or a Jehovah's Witness and they take you to this text because that's what they love to do. You might feel like you corner one of them and they'll say, okay, let's, t- let's talk about Colossians 1.15. Let's talk about how Jesus is the firstborn. Oh, you didn't know that Jesus was created? You didn't know that he's not God? You didn't know that? And then Christians get all freaked out if they don't understand the context, if they don't understand the Old Testament. That's why we do church. That's why we study the Bible. And that's why I'm just scratching the surface, like I said, and just giving you some tools and some ammunition and some verses not only to bolster your faith and my faith, but to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us and do it with gentleness and respect. So Jesus is the Son, the beloved King. He is the Redeemer. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the preeminent one. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's the first, he's the last, he's the everlasting God because he gives himself the same title that God gives himself in Isaiah 44, 6. I'm the first and I am the last and I know of no other God. And Jesus, when he comes, he says, I am the first and I am the last. I and the Father are one, John 10, verse 30, I believe. If Paul wanted to teach that Jesus was created, and I'm bringing this to a close right now, if Paul wanted to teach Jesus was created, he could have used two different Greek words, katithesis or kizo. He could have said proto-kizo. He used prototokos, supremacy. He could have used proto-kizo, which means created one. He didn't use that, and neither did any New Testament author. It's never shown in the New Testament that Jesus was created. He is the creator of all things. By him, all things have been created. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Jesus is supreme. 
Jesus is on his throne and Jesus is coming back again. So let's worship him. Let's adore him. Let's praise him. Let's love him and let's share him with others. Amen.